Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Today I'm here with David Rawls, and David is a minister. What is the name of your church, David? It's Agape Christian Church here in Terre Haute, Indiana. How long have you been at this uh, congregation? So I came in September of uh, 17. In that two-year period, has it been about a two-year period? Correct. You've done a, a, a startling thing, I think, in the Christian churches, and that is that you have shifted the understanding of the role of women and the role of women in leadership that you've all gone through a transformation. Am I describing that right? Yeah, I think that's an accurate assessment. Um, these are some discussions that the church had prior to me coming as well, but the, the stance that they took is not the, the stance uh, where they now sit. And can you describe then a bit of the process of both your, describe your transition, I assume occurred prior to this, and then how did that come about with the church? Well, for me personally, um, it, it actually, I, I don't know when, when I can actually say it happened this date, but, you know, I would say about uh, four or five years ago, I, um, I started actually reading some, some different authors that I had not read in a while, and, and I began to really be stimulated by what they were saying. Um, you know, N.T. Wright uh, was one of those authors. Scott McKnight uh, was another. Uh, a good friend of mine at Great Lakes Christian College, John Nugent, uh, had written some things as well. And I began to, to really see the, the scripture really kind of in a, in a new light than what I had, what I was trained in, what I had learned. And, and as I began to look at the scriptures, I, I realized that uh, the the model or the, or the way I was looking at the scriptures uh, really uh, didn't follow the, the Bible story and what, what God was trying to do through the Bible. You know, normally I would basically read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and man, man fell in Genesis 3, and then I skipped from Genesis 3 to Jesus, and the rest of the Old Testament really became just kind of a proof text that Jesus was God's son. And, you know, I, I missed the whole part that, you know, the Great Commission uh, didn't start in Matthew 28. It actually starts in Genesis 12. And so when I kind of started looking at Scripture again, it it really just opened up my eyes to, to a lot of things. And, of course, um, the issue as far as women's role in leadership I began to start taking a kind of a, a fresh look at that. And, and as I started doing that, I began to see things that I, that I had never seen before. And I think partly it was because the, the way that I was looking at Scripture, I, was, I wasn't focused on, on the story and where God was, was going with the story. And, and so um, that was kind of the, the transformation that began to, to take place in my life. And then as far as our church, uh, we had some uh, leadership training uh, last year, actually it was, and we had questions that were coming up about, well, what about women in leadership? We were a male-dominated uh, leadership, and 
we really have some gifted women in our church. We have some women that have uh, leadership qualities. And, you know, as, as a leadership, we were kind of divided on the issue as, as far as, you know, what that should look like. And, and, you know, I think prior to some of the changes that I've been going through over the last you know, three to five years, I, I would say prior to that, you know, I felt like there was a lot of things women could do, but I wasn't sure that uh, they could be in leadership roles. I, you know, I wrestled with some of the passages that Paul uh, told women to be silent and uh, that they were to uh, submit, you know, to their husbands and different things. And, and I looked at things like the curse and what was being, what I thought was being said there. And, and so, so my view prior to that was that uh, women could do a lot of things, but I just wasn't sure they could be in, in leadership. And so, so when the question came up in our church leadership uh, last year, as far as what about women serving in, in leadership positions, um, we decided as, as a church that let's look at the scripture and uh, really think through this. You know, we were, we were actually going to make some changes. Uh, it was actually earlier this year, we wanted to make some changes in our uh, bylaws and structures and stuff like that. And so we wanted to make sure that what we understood the Bible saying would be reflected in our bylaws. And so uh, that, that was kind of the process. We had uh, the different guys on the leadership team. You know, some of them started uh, reading different things and, and trying to uh, figure this out. And I started putting together a, a biblical uh, look at, at what does the Bible say about women in leadership. And so that was that was kind of where we started and, and went through. So you were kind of going through the transition uh, yourself. Yeah, I, I think I was. I, I really think that over the last six months that I had some some hunches on on where the Bible was at, but I had never spent as much time as I had, you know, going through through these scriptures and and really reading through them and and really taking an honest look. You know, I had I had preached some sermons in the past. I, I remember, oh, this has been a few years ago, but I remember preaching a sermon where uh, I really focused on women's submission to, to men. And I remember some of the women coming up to me, you know, after church and different things. And that was an interesting, you know, thing. But some of the transformation over the last year has been my own transformation as well. So the women were not happy with what you were saying. I think at times uh, they were not. You know, I, I think a lot of the women felt like uh, they had been gifted by God and to use uh, different things. And, and so I think I, you know, I used some of the um, different scholars that were uh, against women in leadership roles and different things like that. And I, I usually would just parrot what they said uh, to these women. And, and, but well, it wasn't until really this last year that I said, I, like I said, I had hunches, but it wasn't until this last year that I said, you know what, I, I just really need to dive into this and, have more of an argument than just what I'm reading other people say. And, and so that, that was kind of that journey. And so part of it was that you revisited the kind of problem passages or clobber passages, we might call them. How did it unfold? Did you look at those passages or in fact, was the transition 
in some way larger than that? I think the transition was somewhat larger than that. I, I really felt like the, the clobber passages, as we call them, I felt like um, we cannot really understand those passages in, until we really understand what the New Testament is saying and, and really what the whole story of the Bible is saying and, and then how that, that fits within the greater uh, picture of everything. So I, I spent two months uh, teaching this whole topic with our church and the clobber passages were the last two weeks. So I really spent a lot of time developing the story within the Bible first. What you came to was a different understanding of the narrative and, and the way that narrative is unfolding rather than uh, si- simply doing a kind of uh, isolated exegesis. Is that is that correct? That is exactly it. And you know, even the, the whole idea of going through the narrative, that whole approach has really become an, a new one for me within the last uh, few years. My, my old approach was, is usually I'd, I'd take a, a topic in the Bible. And, and so if you take women's roles, um, if you were for it, then what you could do is, uh, if you were for women in leadership, um, you could probably go and find some passages that were were for it, or if you had a strong view that women should not lead, you know, all you would have to do is go to those clobber passages. You, you could quote those, and you'd have a couple sermons, and and, and you would be done. <laughs> uh, and, and so the the picture you were describing uh, before is there is a new sense then that what first of all what's taking place in Genesis that the role assigned there is not a prescription, but the fall of man is a curse. And is that then part of the the creation, fall, and new creation? Is that sort of the what you began to discover? Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I began to discover. I started to see the, even as the fall took place, that God was already moving to, to do something about creation and so as you as you move through the Bible story, you know, God chooses this specific group of people that he's he's going to work through them to, to bring about, you know, restoration and, and renewal. And, you know, at times as, a, as you read through the Old Testament, you say, golly, uh, God chose the wrong people here. <laughs> as you continue to read, you, you see that God was and, and did work through through Israel and were introduced obviously to, to Jesus, um, an Israelite. And, and you begin to see that when Jesus comes on the picture, that he's bringing in this, this new creation and this, this new kingdom. And, you know, and so the, the, whole, the whole story is, is working from creation, the fall, to, to new creation. And, and I think my old perspective on it was is creation, fall, and I wasn't sure what all the Old Testament had to do with the story, except that it was really good sermon material to quote, you know, about faith or people of integrity or different things like that. And so I skipped over that. And and basically, I ended up with a Jesus who simply came to, to save us so that we might go to heaven. When you read the Bible within story, it's hard to, to miss it. At least it was once I began to see the whole story of the Bible that, you know, you have creation, fall, 
than the the work of uh, God using a family to to restore everything and and then Jesus inaugurating the renewal process and he's you know he starts with us then you know creation's going to see its um, its renewal as well and and so you know it's just a it's a beautiful picture more than just like I said simply Jesus came so that we might just escape all this mess and so even though maybe women aren't getting the right deal you know that's okay one day we die we go to heaven and you know Jesus will have it all figured out but that's really not the the story of the Bible. Uh, you know, when Jesus comes to the earth, he really uh, begins the uh, the renewal project, and uh, and and then we as a church, we don't just simply uh, wait here, uh, but <laughs> yeah, we colonize Earth. You know, and and become heaven on earth here as living as a, a new creation people. That was really the, the story that really grasped me and then helped me through this whole series. Yeah, I think that is slowly unfolding for, for me also, that the focus in, if you start back at Genesis and you, you almost have to go through a, a paradigm shift of what the problem is and what the solution is, the problem, clearly, if you're taking the Genesis passage, is that there is a turn from relationship with God and with one another in creation in which one has access to life, and there is a turn to an alternative to that, I, that represented by the knowledge of good and evil. And so the failure that is primary in the fall, you know, when we talk about alienation, it's an alienation that is definitive of all of our relationships, but certainly is then definitive of what life is. I, I think we picture, you know, that, oh, we kind of have life and, and love and relationship apart from the renewal. I, I think that what we're getting at this, I've been going through Corinthians, you know, that uh, the entire focus is no, you actually have life as you enter into relationship in the body of Christ, and definitive of the success or failure of that is, you know, Paul and I just doing the love chapter is the ability or, or the, the role of love as, as primary. That is salvation in a present tense practical sense. It's not to exclude a future resolution, and certainly Paul describes that, 1 Corinthians 13, that it is unfolding. So it is a, a shift to what James McClendon has called a, a practical salvation that we begin to experience in, the, in a present tense. And I think at the center of it, the more I study it, the more I'm convinced that the very center of it is the male-female relationship. That the you know picture in Genesis of the creation of woman, many people see there a kind of a foreshadowing right. of the emergence of the church. That is that in the New Testament, that the church plays the role of the bride uh, and Christ plays the role of the groom so that the culmination of the purpose of creation is to be found in the wedding feast of the Lamb, 
which of course is ultimately culminates in the return of Christ. But the picture in John that you get in other places in Scripture is that there is already the beginning of a new kingdom, a new relationship with Christ. That in Second uh, Corinthians, Paul even, you know, in First Corinthians, he describes it that we wait for a face-to-face encounter in the future parousia. But in Second Corinthians, he takes that a little bit further that it's almost as if the beginnings of the beatific vision in 2 Corinthians 3.18 begin in the here and now in the way in which we mirror Christ and are taken up then uh, and transformed into his image. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, it's, uh, that, that doesn't mean that, um, you know, sin still doesn't wag its, its ugly head and and certainly, not everything is under submission to Christ. As far as you know, there's there's all kinds of things that are still going on, and, and uh, but we know that kind of the the now but not yet, right? It's the the kingdom has started, and and so we start living as as if we're already Christ has already come back to to finish everything up and so we we start living in that way and and so you know even at the very least if there was a prohibition for women to to lead after genesis 3 at the very least i would think that that would be restored as as far as uh, within the church you know to to reverse that curse although i i do think that there was never really a, a, a prohibition as much as a description of, uh, you know, after the fall, the description was, is, hey, you guys are going to fight over power positions here now. So I think that is going on. But at the very least, um, when the, the kingdom comes in through Jesus, that what we see in the garden should be how we live back to that. I think most people would agree that within the garden, there was there was no hierarchy whatsoever between man and woman. It was It was simply... Uh, the, the two of them working together to really live out uh, community. But that, that's the picture that I, that I see in the Bible. The oppression, coercion, you know, authoritarianism, the, the dominance, the rule, the pain, the suffering, none of that is salvific. That's all part of the, the curse. That's all part of the fall. And I think it's, it's sort of strange you know, I've, uh, as you go through the New Testament. And again, this just hits me, the sense in which Paul, even in exercising his own authority, is not claiming to just be able to rule over and, and dominate and order people around. If that were the case, he would have never written any letters. The very premise of letter writing is that he's engaging people, arguing with them, convincing them, and not ordering them around or in some authoritarian manner, say, do this. Or, And in that, he is modeling then the authority, the, the way that Christ's authority works. And he says this, I mean, he says as much that he's the servant. You know, Christ says he's the servant of all, but Paul says the same thing about himself. And once, once you get that, that whatever you do with the relationship to others, and what more important relationship is there than the male-female relationship, and one that 
is most intimate to who we are, definitive of who we are and the direction of our life. Where could it, salvation work itself out in a, in a more clear fashion or fail to, to be worked out than in that relationship? Sure, sure. E- even the whole point that you're making uh, about Paul uh, not seeing himself as a power over somebody or I have authority. You know, you even see that in the book of Philemon, dealing with a, a, a pretty contentious situation. You know, you're, you're living in, in the Roman world that slavery is what uh, oil and gasoline is to our economy today, right? And, and mm-hmm. so Paul, I think, addresses Philemon with this whole picture of, um, new creation and the impact that that new creation should have on how he should deal with uh, his uh, runaway slave, and so and he, and Paul does it in in such a way, not as, and I think even Paul says in Philemon, you know, I as a as kind of your the one that probably uh, helped bring you to Christ, I probably could order you or, or tell you what to do, but that's that's not the way this works. And then he begins to to uh, encourage Philemon to, to do the right thing in, in view of what Christ has done and in view of uh, this new way to, to see the world, this new way to see life. And, and so I think that's a, a beautiful picture that if you take Paul and Philemon's relationship, I, I think that picture of how they handle things is, I think, then uh, the same picture that you can use uh, for male and female relationships that we were meant to, to work together, not to uh, be one over the other, but, but to work together as a team. And uh, the picture, it, it, beautiful there in Philemon, and I think it carries over in the even the passages that are kind of the problem passages for many people. And that is that if there is some headship or there is some role like that, we see Paul, the way in which he utilizes that or the way that he does that, utilizes the wrong word, is a radical subordination that he refuses to tell Philemon to do what he should do, but he argues with him, he convinces him, he wants him to be part of the process. He's not in any way speaking against institutional slavery per se any more than in Romans he's speaking against the Roman government which of course is about to behead him he's not demanding that we follow or obey Caesar or that we follow or and obey uh, cultural norms he's in fact saying that we undermine those in a radical subordination to the powers that be and that then is subversive that is slavery is undone where christianity has embraced been embraced in its fullness but also the oppression of the other is undone as well and we i think that's the the understanding in the passages that right. in the epistles right i couldn't agree you know, anymore on that and you know unfortunately the church at times has been behind on these things you know we should have uh, we should have been leading the way as far as, uh, you know, that you take the, the Me Too movement or uh, even, you know, civil rights or, or you know, we, we probably should have never gotten to civil rights. If, if there was such a Christian presence within our country, slavery uh, should have never, never been an issue. And, and so 
Um, unfortunately, we as the church usually uh, fall behind on these things. And, and I know some think, well, you're just, you know, this whole allowing women to lead, you're, you're just following what's culturally pushing you or, or something like that. And, and I, I, I really don't think that I am. I, I think that that the Bible was already leading in this, but we've, huh. we use the Bible in a way, uh, just as we use the Bible during the time of slavery. You know, I think about the restoration movement and I, I read somewhere not too long ago that I think it was in the 1850s that within the restoration movement churches that we owned more slaves than any other group, you know, Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist. And, you know, and we're supposed to be people book in the Bible, but we, a lot of times we, we use the, the Bible in, in really wrong ways. And I think that's why a narrative approach is, is so important that we, we try to see what is the story telling us. And, and then when you begin to look at the story, it frees up. It just really brings things to light, especially this whole issue uh, with with women in leadership. Describe for us a bit. I assume that you were were you both teaching and preaching on the topic. So you began your teaching, your preaching, describing this narrative approach. And did people capture that? Were they captured by that vision, or did it take a while? To uh, it seems like that in and of itself is a is a huge paradigm shift sure you know it's funny i never um i I never went out of my way to say you know hey we need to reject other approaches to the bible and we need to accept a a narrative approach to the bible i i never did that but what i did do is when we started this series and there were several things that we did i i had a sermon series but then also i know we have um uh, connect groups. And I know some of the connect groups, uh, those are your kind of your small group Bible studies that would meet during the week that we would have some of our connect groups in discussion about some of the things that we were going over. And so uh, part of that process then uh, was that we would talk through these issues. And and so, um, but yeah, so I never u- really used the the terminology to really make a point of pointing out uh, a narrative approach, uh, although I, I mean, I used the verbiage quite a bit. And so what we did, and we had people bring questions uh, to me and the leadership and say, you know, but what about this? And, it, you know, you, usually it was the clobber passages. And so what we invited people to do was is hold those questions. Those are great questions, but hold those questions until we go through the story. And so that's that's where we started. And so, the, you know, the story, we started in the story of, of Genesis and uh-huh. we showed that man and, and woman were uh, both commissioned to, to lead together, to work together. We then, you know, covered the fall and, you know, within the fall, I came, this is the conclusion that I came to. And uh, part of the conclusion that I, the reason I came to it is, is because I felt like the picture that of, of what the story was, the rest of the Bible seemed to back that up. And I think sometimes, you know, you have to do that, say, okay, I, I think this is what's being said, but does the rest of the story give evidence to this? And so within the fall, um, I, I believe that when God came into the garden and said, boy, you, you guys have really done something that um, is, is not a good thing, 
that as he started started talking about the curses, it's interesting that he curses the ground and he and he curses the serpent. It doesn't. I don't believe that the text. I don't have it in front of me right now, but I don't believe the text actually says he cursed the woman or he cursed man. Now there are results of of some of those things that took place, but I believe that when he talked about the the struggle between man and woman, that that wasn't okay, this is the new law and this is what's going to happen now. Woman, you've messed up and you're going to have to allow your husband to lead. But the, but the text actually says that, you know, there's going to be this struggle between the two uh, sexes here. And we see that play out not only throughout Bible history, but we just see it play out in history in general. But as you go into the story and as you begin reading the Old Testament, you see that women did lead. Now, there's not a, a, a million accounts of women leading, but you know. But you see, uh, Miriam had a leadership role uh, with with Moses. Um, I think it's in Nahum that gives us a description of uh, Miriam, Aaron, and, and Moses uh, leading leading the people together. We saw in Deborah. You know, you have Deborah, who's. It's interesting in the book of Judges. There's not many good judges. They serve their purposes and. And, and different things. But Deborah seems to be one of the shining lights as, as a judge. Now, this is, this is a, a woman who is called to, um, to lead the nation of Israel, not only from a kind of a uh, political, uh, secular type situation, but also a, a spiritual one as, as well. And, and she was to judge Israel. And when in previous years, I'd always answer that question when somebody say, if I'd say something to the nature of, you know, well, God doesn't want women to lead, somebody would bring up Deborah. And I, I'd always answer, well, the only reason God chose Deborah is there just wasn't any good men around. When you look at the book of Judges, well, that's true. There are no good men around. I mean, most of the judges had huge moral flaws, and, and yet Deborah was one of the, the shining lights. But I bring up that point because there's nowhere in the Bible that says, while well, she was chosen because there were no men around. It's, it's just something that we've made up, really. Of course, there's uh, other women in the Bible. and But I, I went to, in the Old Testament, I went to Huldah. She was a, a prophetess, and she, um, I think she lived during the time of Jeremiah and, and, and those prophets. And, and yet when, um, when they found the book of the law, I'm certain that there were some really qualified and godly men that that Josiah could have gone to to say, hey, what are we supposed to do? But but he goes to Huldah and she speaks on behalf of God. So here's here's a woman teaching, you know, the, the leader of Israel uh, or, the, you know, the nation. Then, you know, you carry that story into the New Testament. Uh, you have Jesus allowing women to to be disciples. And, and the reason that you have disciples is not just so that you gain facts and, and information, but you you have disciples because you're going to expect them, after you've invested into them, you're going to expect them to go out and teach others. We see that with Jesus. And really, Jesus was pretty scandalous in, in his time because certainly there was a heavy patriarchal system already set up, not by God's design, but by the uh, the religious leaders. But Jesus uh, sits down, you know, that we, we always read the story of uh, Mary, I believe it was, that was sitting at, at the feet of Jesus. And 
Um, you know, Martha, she's upset because Mary's not in there helping her and, and different things. And of course, we paint that story. Usually we say, hey, Mary's doing doing the honorable thing. She's sitting down and, you know, just spending time with Jesus. And sometimes we get so busy in our work, we just need to spend time with Jesus. And certainly that that probably has some application. But if you see the story within its cultural context, that's a huge shocker. Uh, Mary is doing what men are only allowed to do within that society. And that is, is to sit under and learn from a rabbi. And Martha, um, it's not so much that she's upset that not all the dishes are getting done, but Martha's like, wait a minute, she's doing what men are to be doing and she needs to get get out of there and, and be doing what, what women are to be doing, play that, that subordinate role. But um, Jesus won't have any of that. And as Jesus works and moves, you, you see that story that, you know, again, was, was scandalous. And then by the time you get into, uh, you know, Acts chapter two, which is one of my favorite chapters where growing up in the restoration movement, uh, our whole focus is, has usually been on, you know, like Acts 2.38, uh, which is, you know, this is a great passage, but, but we miss when, when Peter stands up and, and talks about, you know, this new age that's come where, where our young men and our young women will, will prophesy. And well, to prophesy was, was to preach, was to, to go and, and to proclaim. And, and so, you know, so we, we see this story that if, if there was any confusion in the Old Testament, and if we weren't sure what Jesus was doing in the Gospels, by the time we get in the book of Acts, we begin to see um, women doing what was traditionally seen as as a man's job. Uh-huh. We begin to see them preaching, and and then you know we, as the story continues, uh, you see uh, people uh, that that Paul uh, works with. You know, I, I think of uh, Aquila and Priscilla, and what's amazing there is is that uh, as you read through those texts, Priscilla has a it seems to um, scripturally have a very important role uh, in, in training. Um, I think it was Apollos that she helped theologically. You know, his, his teaching was off. And, and I think even the Bible writers say that, man, this guy was a great teacher. He just lacked, you know, a, a few important doctrinal things. And, and you have Priscilla, um, a part of that. And of course, um, then when you get into the New Testament letters, you, you see things like, especially Romans 16, you see that, that there are women that Paul worked with and served with, and they, these were not just subordinate roles, um, but um, these, are, these are leadership positions that, that these women held. And, and so that's, now that's the story before you even get to the clobber passages. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.